An award-winning actress and gladiator receives a call from her parents on a routine afternoon. Their nervous hesitations let her know something is wrong. She turns her car around, drives to their home, and sits within the living room of the people she's known all her life as mom and dad, her protectors, her withholding parents. There, in that familiar home, they share a secret that begins to unravel the loose ends of her childhood memories. The gladiator. Carrie Washington. The book, Thicker Than Water by Carrie Washington. And you're listening to List Society. Let's get And you're listening to Lit Society, a show about books and drama. Today, we're going to push the theme of the week to the uh, end of our show, or at least after the deep dive into our book. We'll get right into our book because we know that's why y'all here. And the theme of the week, just a reminder, is a brief discussion inspired by the themes within the book. So we'll talk about that a little later. Stay tuned. It's very exciting. You'll be very interested. So Alexis, as we're diving into our book first, can you give us some context? Who is this Carrie Washington? Do we know her? Who who she is? Tell us. Okay. So I want to share some context. In fact, she gives an intro in her book as to why she's writing. So here goes. This book is the result of my attempts to make sense of myself and my family and to accept the truth about who we are. I've written this account to more fully understand this truth, to affirm it, and to embrace it. This truth has given birth to a deeper compassion and love for my parents and for myself. And I share it with you because I do not want to hide. I thought that was beautiful. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a brief synopsis of the book without spoilers? Mm -hmm. Carrie Washington shares her journey of getting comfortable in her skin after childhood traumas, career rejections, and learning a family secret. Kari, who do you think would enjoy reading this book? Well, we're in memoir season, right? If you really enjoyed yeah. diving into Brittany's story, into Jada's story, then I think that you will very much enjoy Carrie Washington's book. And I'll also throw... Um, I almost said beloved. What was um, <laughs> uh, Mrs. Obama's book? Oh, oh Becoming. <laughs> Becoming. <laughs> beloved. <laughs> so if you enjoyed Becoming, um, the story of a driven woman and her family and how she got to where she is, um, it can be motivational in a lot of ways. And so uh, you may be interested in this. And then Alexis, why did you choose Thicker Than Water by Carrie, Ma- uh, Carrie Washington, a memoir? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I um I like Carrie Washington. I wanted to read her story. I had heard some snippets um about her interviews and nothing really revealed anything. Mm. So I wanted to go in and um look into the book. Yeah. She's very smart in that way, right? She can say mm-hmm. a whole lot of something and nothing. Cause she yeah. wants you to buy that book. She's she, I mean, she's brilliant. <laughs> <For> sure. <laughs> Have you listened to her podcast, The Street You Grew Up On? No, it's very cute. And she's got a YouTube channel. I love it. Oh, wow. She's had um, her 
uh, co-star from Scandal on there, Tony. <laughs> I feel like we just brought his name up because he narrated for um, a president's daughter, Goldwyn. Mm-hmm. Um, she's had Kelly Rowland. She's had Mariah Carey. This is fun stuff over there. So, okay, Carrie in the streets. <laughs> well, let's take a quick, quick break and then we'll dive into this memoir, revealing all, all right. the business. Stay oh, tuned. I love it. Okay, sounds good. Dive into Thicker Than Water, a memoir by Carrie Washington, full of spoilers. The floor is yours. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, so Carrie opens with a prologue. It's Tuesday, April 3rd, 2018. She's on her way home when she received a text from her mother telling her, we need to talk to you. Carrie tells us this is odd because her parents weren't the type of people to dive headfirst into difficult conversations, nor was it common for them to present a united front. She was heading home to meet with um, family. So um, she asked her mother if that needed to happen today. Her mother said yes. So with all the questions racing through her mind and knowing deep down this is bad news, she heads to her parents' home. When she arrived at her parents' home, she said they were all there. Earl, Valerie, Carrie, father, mother, and only child, Mm -hmm. the Washingtons. She said, hey, guys, to convey a readiness to hear whatever it is they were that was coming. And no one said anything. They didn't even look at each other. Not her either. And for the past few weeks, her father had been having sleepless nights and panic attacks. Um, and she repeated her greeting. She said, hey, what's going on? <laughs> her mother took a deep breath and started to speak. 43 years ago, we were having a really hard time having a child. Part one. Three weeks earlier, Carrie had finished filming her last ever scandal scenes. For seven seasons, she said she had given the character Olivia Pope and the show audiences, and cast and crew, every available ounce of her soul. She said, I had worked harder than I ever knew was possible and had sacrificed elements of my life that I had not been prepared for. Mm -hmm. My health, my privacy, any number of personal relationships. And now a weight was being lifted. She said her entire life, she'd felt an immense pressure to succeed and get everything unendingly right. She spoke about filming um, a final scene with her and Bellamy Young, that character, um, Melly Grant in Scandal. And they had worked seven years together. And this last scene was about Olivia Pope saying goodbye to Melly. Um, but the way Carrie was saying it was too happy. And the director was like, can you be a little less happy? Yeah. So the character, Melly's character, um, or no, the Melly goes, um, Olivia, what are you going to do? And Carrie goes as Olivia, whatever I want, <laughs> whatever I want. And they're like, mm, this is a sassy. And Carrie looks at her coworker and there's tears in her eyes. And she's like, you know what? You've always been so uh, much more emotionally intelligent than me. You're right. This is a sad moment. 
she loved being playing that character, but it was exciting to see what the new chapter of her life would yeah. bring. And that's built into her acting. I thought that was, that was mm-hmm. funny. Um, so now, um, so this was a time for Olivia, not Olivia. Well, yeah, Olivia, <laughs> as well as Carrie Washington to now be their authentic selves. And, um, so it was a time for her to reflect. So, and she would ask herself, do I even know who my authentic self is? Mm. If I'm not Olivia Pope, who am I? And she's nearing 40 at this time, right? She, mm. Or she is 40. She she's 40 in her 40s. Yeah, early 40s. At this point. Yeah. Still wondering who she is. Yeah. She said, in these years, I had become Olivia Pope, but I had also become Carrie Washington, the star of this historic network drama. In a matter of days, both of these roles would be slipping away and I would be left standing at the threshold of a new adventure. Mm. Part two, the parentals. The parentals. (laughs) Listen, <laughs> where all the drama begins. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Carrie's mother, Valerie, was best friends with a woman named Claudelle. The two women met when they were um, labeled special and gifted and sent off to the same school in Manhattan. Valerie would go on to become a professor and create groundbreaking programs for teachers of color. Valerie would also meet her first husband in college and later divorce him after a tumultuous start. During this first marriage, she would give birth to a stillborn that would lead to many questions about her mother's overall reproductive health. Also during this um, marriage, after she lost this baby, Mm-mm. the husband would like in his art draw pictures of women a woman with an empty womb, right? Is that how yeah, they describe to, to it, Carrie? Yeah, to torture her. But yeah. um, Carrie gives him grace. It sounds like he had mental um, issues. Yeah. So, but yeah, after she, she her, her child died, he would just paint picture after picture of women with empty wombs. Oh, it's terrible. I yeah, cannot I can imagine. 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 And she said one cause for their... Uh, one cause for their divorce um, would have been he pointed a gun at her and he said he missed on purpose. He shot a gun at her and said he missed on purpose. So mm. that divorce, their divorce. OK, well, <sighs> after that divorce, her and Claudelle was still keeping in contact. This is her childhood friend went to high school with her. Yeah. So and- we're talking about Carrie's mom and Carrie's mom's childhood friend. Yes. So they would later connect at this house party in the Bronx. And that's where Claudel's younger brother, Earl, spent the whole evening catching up with Valerie on the back porch, even though he brought another date. He brought a date. OK. Can I just and, give a little footnote here? Go ahead. Sorry, this is tangential. But as I've also been studying in my free time, the birth of hip hop. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why my mind went here when I was reading this book. I was like, oh, I wonder if they was at the party where hip hop was born. It's all bleeding together. Oh, okay. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Connie. No, this is an intellectual show, you guys. You learn so much. So much. (laughs) So, like I said, Earl spent the evening, Claudel's brother, younger brother, Earl spent the evening catching up with Valerie. Of course, they'd known each other since the girls were in high school. So, 
Um, he like, I'm grown, grown now. I heard you divorced. Mm-hmm. How that's going? Mm-hmm. And then he comfort. had <laughs> just come back from the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. And Valerie was heading to Mexico for a vacation. So their conversation lasted well into the wee hours. And Earl was talking about all things sports. And he was in love with all things sports and international culture. He'd run um, as a track athlete. And he would eventually run for both the University of Pittsburgh as well as the U.S. Army. And being stationed in Germany is where he developed his love of travel. The next day, as friends... um, a bunch of kids would go to the beach. They hang out. And Earl said he fell in love with Valerie when he saw that she dove into the ocean and they swam together that day, but they wouldn't start dating for several months later. So Valerie comes from, again, this is Carrie's mother, comes from mixed race parents. She said her um, father looked Northern European, like a Northern European immigrant. He was fair skinned with angular features and her mother was African and um, of Arawak uh, heritage. Um, A lot of her siblings were racially ambiguous and, but Carrie's mother was the darkest among them and presented as a, a, um, a black person. Carrie said her mother believed that living off her looks and relying on the unconditional love of family was not an option. Option, So she focused on being smart, independent, self-reliant and successful. Carrie says that determination and a struggle with self-esteem was passed on to her. Her father, Earl, his mother's family was rooted in New York um, with lineage that included the Shinnecock a tribe of Long Island and his father's family um, was born in Brooklyn and raised in New York, but his people held from um, Gullah Geechee country. Carrie speaks of a time when her father went to uh, St. Hel- Helena Island off the coast of South Carolina for the first time to visit the family's property. And on the way back, her dad asked two men for directions. And after they got the directions, Carrie could overhear the um, conversation, even though she had a hard time understanding their patois, she could overhear this, um, their conversation and she could clearly hear them say, yeah, they black folks, but they look rich. And there she could see her father was proud to be labeled rich, which instilled in Carrie that appearances matter and to be taught and to be thought of as wealthy or powerful or successful was a goal worth um, pursuing, whether it was true or not. After her parents would marry, it would be five years of them trying to conceive um, when her mother became pregnant with Carrie. Their prayers were answered and her father was so proud. Carrie said her mother's devotion to her was undeniable, her dedication palpable, her sacrifices endless. When it came to the development of her mind, she gave her the world. Carrie said in the back um would sit in the back of lecture halls and watch her mother teach because her mother was a professor, as I mentioned. And then going to her mother's office was part of her um, their routine as she was growing up. Uh, her mother's disciplined intellectual curiosity uh, lived in opposition to her father's electric cre- creativity. Her father loved to laugh, create, dream, tell stories. Carrie said when she was a toddler, her father took her to see her first film, Fantasia. Do you know that uh, movie, Kari? 
Did you watch that as a youth? Yeah, with them dancing brooms and carrying out. Mm-mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not in a God-fearing house. No. <laughs> she said, yeah, it's, it's like a groundbreaking <clears throat> animation. Yeah, yeah. She says that magical, aspirational Disney ethos of wishing upon a star and dreams coming true runs fiercely through her father's veins and was passed down from his heart to hers. She says she likely chose the job that she has because of her dad, because he taught her that anything is possible and she reached for the impossible because of how he saw the world. But how she does what she does, her work ethic, her technique, her professionalism and drive all comes from her mother. Her mother's drive to educate her mixed with her dad's endless imagination encoded her with the um, the artist and made her the artist that she would become. That's a good combination. Mm-hmm. Although Carrie did not lack for food, clothing, shelter or culture, she longed for an authentic connection with her parents. She always felt like something was missing or something was wrong. And she wondered what was wrong with her that she would feel this way. She longed for a a sibling. And at the age of 10, she asked her mother why they chose not to have more children. Her mother shared that it was not easy to conceive and she was um, long wished for. And then matter of factly, she told her that she had given birth to another child that was stillborn. And she could tell that this conversation wasn't easy for her mother. So she didn't continue with the line of questioning. Instead, she decided to be grateful for her life. Carrie mentions a time when she was eight and she asked her mother why her grandmother, her father's mother, didn't like her. She said, "Um, mother avoided eye contact, deflected the question and asked, what makes you think that? She realized she asked the wrong question. Carrie says maybe she sensed her grandmother's discomfort with her as if something about the story of their family was not quite right. But Carrie only knew one story. She was the only child of Earl and Valerie Washington. But even as a child, she sensed there was more. So She created a narrative to fill in the blanks so she could have something that resembled an inner cohesive life. She soothed her loneliness by pouring into books, movies and playing make believe. And she even eventually um, she found her way to the stage um, and film and places where she could be with other humans that would laugh and cry together and make eye contact, breathe and say difficult things and experience joy and live in truth. She said, I went to the imaginary looking for truth. While her mother's career seemed to flourish, um, for the most part, her dad had a tough time. He had different jobs, eventually becoming a real estate agent. She said he always had vivid dreams of success and grandeur mixed with the two, um, with the two trusting heart of an intrepid entrepreneur. So he would take on ventures that he hoped would lead to a life of wealth and ease, but he often was disappointed. In the mid 80s, his dad's most recent employer was investigated by the IRS. Um, Carrie 
said that when uh, she was in therapy at the age of 18, she spoke a lot about her dad and how different they were, how disconnected she felt with him. And when her therapist suggested that they talk about her mom, she was like, why? <laughs> that that is, is the problem. problem. Is your listening mm-hmm. therapist? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> she felt like she would never uh, know who her dad um, really was, one, needed right? her to be. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um. So she would eventually stop trying to meet his impossible standards, rejecting him, his opinions. And she started trying to be perfect for everybody else. She also tells us about a time um, she was at dinner with her mom and her mom's sister and her mom's conversation turned to the frustrations she was having with her father. How old was Carrie at this time? I think she was 16. Yeah, she said she was 16. That makes sense. Cause she like and one of the girls, but that's an only child thing. That's an We're, only child mm-hmm. thing. Yes. You would be at the table with adults. Of course, you would be told to be quiet and stuff. Mind mm. your business. After a while, they stop telling you because then they kind of like, well, what else you going to do? You just hear <laughs> Then you in the gossip. And her mom's <laughs> like, you won't believe what Earl did today. And Carrie's like, girl, if you don't just leave him to her mm-hmm. mama, mm-hmm. if you unhappy, girl, you know, be free. <laughs> <laughs> to her mother. <laughs> her mother says, because I can't. Yeah. If why I don't you leave him out? Because I can't. Yeah. He'll have nothing. And her eyes were filled with regret and remorse. She seemed trapped in a prison of her own compassion and guilt. Mm, I think this is really beautiful because um, there's no talk of this man being unfaithful to their union. Um, He is just unsuccessful in business. And there are parts of his personality that are challenging to deal with. Um, Her mom doesn't want to leave him because he'll really have nothing if he doesn't have their family. And Carrie sees it as her mom being trapped in this marriage, but her parents are still married today. And I think her mom was actually reflecting a type of love that is not, um, (laughs) that is kind of frowned on, especially nowadays when you Mm -hmm. stay with someone that you've vowed to be with, And they're not really reciprocating your efforts or to the outside, at least it doesn't look like this is a good match, but y'all already together. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So her mom was like, yeah, if I leave him, he'll have absolutely nothing. So I guess I'm just, you know, here. (laughs) Yeah, but they're still together and they got to be They don't have to be. She could have left. You hear so many stories of people as they get older separating. Girl, Um, people be separating for over six years and still acting like they're together in public or so we hear. (laughs) So did they read about something like that? I feel like we just read about something Mm, like that. So these people marry married. They marry for real. Exactly. I I mean, I applaud her mom for hanging in there um, and supporting. And supporting this man emotionally and no doubt in a lot of ways, maybe even financially at the time mm-hmm. while he was trying to get on his feet, yep. even though it was hard, even mm-hmm. though it's hard. And really, can she not vent to her friend? It's just, sister, you know, she had an only her child. Sister, her, <laughs> her sister. Her sister. Oh, my yes. goodness. She was venting to her sister. She was venting to her sister, but her little only child got to be, you know, dunking her cookies in the coffee like, girl, just leave him. You mean your dad? <laughs> yeah, leave him. I know what I mean. 
And Carrie, Carrie had already had these feelings about her dad. So she was like, they didn't connect. Them. Yeah. She felt like they weren't connecting. Mm-hmm. So it was easy for her she to say like, that. She was like, me and Molly, your little friend, and we'll just go get a place. <laughs> <laughs> the oh history they had. Carrie, Carrie, Carrie. Sorry. I'm sorry. Um, she doesn't, she's not seeing it because all she sees is their hard times. And I'll talk a little bit about and that she later. Didn't vow to, and she mentions this. She didn't pledge yeah. her life to this man. This is her husband. This is her mother's husband. Yeah. <laughs> this is her father. Yeah. But it's not someone she's vowed to be with. She's like, well, I'm stuck with him. What I do? <laughs> I didn't like him. Shoot, I don't Get even like nerves. your little friend. It's kind of funny in hindsight. Mm. Part three: Growing up as as a youth, Carrie adapted her parents um, adopted her parents' love of swimming, living on the top floor of her building and facing Queens. They lived beneath. Um, on they lived. I think it was a pool in the bottom of it. Yeah, in the complex. Yeah, um, sounds really cool. Yeah, it does. It sounds like a place you would have loved to grow up in. <laughs> yeah, twenty four seven access to a pool. Yes, mm-hmm. I would have. That that's a real dream. You practice every day, swim, 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 swim. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Alexis is a fish, if you don't know. And <laughs> I've been taking swim lessons since I was five. She still can't swim. It she can't. She's it's she genetic. can't swim. She can't. She can't indeed you swim. See? I've seen it. Listen. So oh yeah, awesome. I almost drowned in the pool, and Alexis was like, "Good job, good job on your swimming." It don't matter. We ain't got to talk tangential. Getting off the subject like, again. Stand up. But the way okay. Carrie described swimming, I was just getting mad. I had to close the book. <laughs> She, she was does. like, it's easy for me to swim this way. But then my mother was like, use your arms. And then use I used my arms. arms and I was like, wow, I can swim even faster with more energy. <laughs> I love swimming. It's she so loves swimming. easy. I'm Carrie Washington and I swim so much she loves swimming so much um Shonda Rhimes was able to incorporate that did she say Shonda's it was Shonda's idea mm-hmm. to ask her what um something that she liked to do and she was able to incorporate that into um Scandal yeah her character Olivia Pope on Scandal would swim because that was Carrie Washington's passion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay well anyway they the building that they lived in um was like a direct flight path for LaGuardia Airport. So she would look out the window and just long to be on the plane on an adventure. Um, she she just loved it. She she lived a life of escapism. You know, she was always looking for a way out because she lacked the. She felt like she lacked the intimacy and closeness with her family. And there was always a, a mask on or um, she never felt like she always got the, the true story. The whole like they story. were always pretending even in mm-hmm. front of just each other. Yeah. That's well put. And we'll we'll talk about that a little bit as well. Carrie um, was also a hairbrush singer. Okay. <laughs> Big time hairbrush singer. She was also a member, a member of a talented and gifted group, which meant she um, was sent to specialty schools. In the sixth grade, she auditioned for a part in Bye Bye Birdie. When asked why she didn't audition for the lead, she told her teacher she didn't think she would get it because she wasn't white. She did, however, get the supporting ethnic role and, and she, for her, she heard the message that um, it was not her job to be the main character, but to assist the main character. 
She said, when people ask uh, me if I am the first actor in my family, I often joke that I am just the first to get paid for it. Mm. There are no other professional performing artists in our family tree that I know of, but we, my mom, my dad, and me are a family of performers. Each of Mm. us has spent a lifetime playing a role vital to our shared narrative. My role is our in our performance came naturally because I was born into its twists and turns and draped in its masks and costumes. We three were the picture perfect presentation of ourselves as we wanted to be perceived not only by the outside world but by each other. We were a fairy tale portrait of success And this was the only show I knew. We performed it all day long for years. The script was how we tried to avoid pain, messiness, and discomfort. Wow. Wow. The way she worded this, I was blown away um, by her writing style and just the whole entirety of her childhood that she summed up in a few prose. I thought this was really well done. Mm Mm-hmm. Carrie could hear her parents fight at night and when they and, and they were thinking she was asleep and um, her mother, she could hear that her mother was disappointed in her dad and her dad was disappointed in the marriage. And then the next morning they'd smile and pretend like everything was fine. Carrie learned early on um, to be someone else and she learned to keep her parents happy so she could be safe. But something was still off and she blamed herself. As children do, Carrie began to feel she was the only one keeping them together. When she would hear them fight, she would take it as a failure and she'd feel as if um, it was her job to fix it. Carrie's father has had a drinking problem. In the book, she does not call him an alcoholic, though. Did you notice that, Carrie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. He had a drinking I mean, but problem. she describes it in a way where it's clear that's what he is. Yeah. But she just doesn't use the the term. Um, and I don't think he's drinking anymore, right? I don't so know. So maybe she doesn't want to label him yeah. as having that disease. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a drinking problem, but he didn't think he did. Um, mm-hmm. Neither her mother or her liked the man he became when he drank. He would be this. Um, this way on holidays and at family functions, she said in a world where he struggled to find the kind of material success and power he craved, drinking allowed the big boss man persona within him to be the center of every circle and the life of every party. Some of her dad's bars were on her way um, to rehearsal and she was always afraid to run into him in a state So she would conjure up scenarios in her head, auditioning the embarrassment and rehearsing the dread so as not to be surprised when overcome with it. Um, When he would come home drunk, she watched her mother put on her mask, her armor and perform, hiding her rage and instead showing kindness. Watching her parents' performance helped Carrie develop her own performance techniques. Carrie and her mother were disgusted by her father's actions. Carrie said one time she asked her mother if they were ever, if they ever had a happy marriage and her mother was indignant. She said, we were happy for many years. We had many, many good years before you came along and many good years that you 
are just too young to remember. Wow. 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 Yes. Your parents live whole lives before you come. Whole lives before you came. (laughs) And so I I thought that was a big deal because Mm -hmm. all the child sees is what they see. Mm-hmm. And if it's all bad, that's all they see. So they make assumptions about things and stuff they don't know. And and you as a parent may not necessarily share that with them. And it's not like you have to, Mm-mm. right? It wasn't, it's not your life. It's, yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Also, it shows how much people change um, and you have to make room for people to change both to make mistakes and improve. Yeah. And I just want to speak to her mom's strength in these moments. I know a lot of people may feel like, well, her mom should have just left Left. and been the best her that she could have been. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's obviously a lot of love that she had for her husband. And she remembered those good qualities that he'd showed. She couldn't unring that bell. As um as Jada said in her memoir about uh, Chris Rock, <laughs> yeah, she yeah. she'd seen those good qualities, and even though he was going through a time and it was lasting for a while, uh, yeah, she was just like suffering with him because he's suffering. Yeah. He's going out drinking and failing in his um his endeavors. He's suffering too. They're all suffering at this time. It just so happens that they had a child at the start of this period. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, her beautiful. answer, Carrie said her mother's answer reminded her that even as a teenager, whatever years of discontent I thought I knew were predated by perhaps a decade of something else, something that held them together even now because mm-hmm. they're still married, mm-hmm. as we said. As a result of her parents' late night battles, Carrie developed panic attacks. She was seven. One night as her parents fought, she left her room to tell them to stop. When her mother saw her, she cried. But the next morning, it was as if nothing happened. It was, and her mother was also said that she wanted to like decompress and take a bath with like this Ooh, yes. um, water jet thing that attaches to the edge of the pool of the tub. But she thought, what if my husband throws the whole thing in it and electrocutes me? She said this mm-hmm. in the room with her family with, and it mm-hmm. shows the how, you know, how um, the despair that they were in as a family at this mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Um, she would later tell her aunt to tell her parents if they didn't stop fighting, she was going to leave and move in with her. And of course, she didn't go through with it, but she decided that she would share. She would no longer share information about her parents' battles um, with her aunt and she would become more private and withdrawn. She resolved to stay in her room at night and she decided my mind and body became the enemy. I was trapped within them. I tucked away the fear and started to develop a role, a character that would stay with me. The good girl, the Mm. perfect child, the solution. It was clear that my parents had lost their ability to express their love to each other, but perhaps a shared love for me could help them find it again. Now, Carrie goes in um, just a little trigger warning and talks about some uh, things that happened to her. Um, um, some uh, s- now, how does she describe it, Carrie? You want to talk about that? Sure. Um, I thought she described it very well. and. Um in a mature fashion, but mm-hmm. she was uh, without her consent touched as a child in a sexual nature by another child. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe this boy may have been older than her, but they were both minors. Um, it was while she was asleep and she'd wake up with her clothes in disarray and wondering, how did I get here like this? Um, or her nightgown would be pulled up and it happened at like sleepovers with her friends. Um, and she one day or one night um, pretended to sleep. Or well, actually first she she uh, suspected that he was doing something because he ran out of the room. She woke up and he was running out of the room that they were sleeping, the girls with his friends. And she said, Does, is something happening to me? And he goes, you made that up. What did he say? It was like three things. I don't know what you're talking about. You made that up. You're crazy or something. And in those three statements, he gaslit her to the point where for a while she didn't even trust what she saw or how she felt. This is so wrong, but she explains it in a way that I thought was um, fair because, yes, it's wrong. It's terrible. And who knows what he was going through that made him be this type of boy. Um, but it's wrong. It's not an excuse. It's just reasoning. It's not the same as when an adult takes advantage of a child, but it is still abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, two things can be true that the both children needed help. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was happening was happening to Carrie. Yeah. So she is like the victim in this um, situation. But anyway, she stays up, uh, pretends to sleep. He sneaks into the room, sits on the edge of the bed and she um, like pops up and is telling him like, I knew I wasn't crazy, something like that. And she's like, I'm going to tell the parents because the parents are there too. It's not like her um, mom's negligent or or her parents are negligent in any way. Um, They're in the other room. They're in the other room. And he, and he goes, please don't. And so she runs to the other room. She's like, mom. And her mom's like, yeah. And she's like, I want some water. <laughs> yeah. And she doesn't get the boy in trouble. She goes into the room with the boys and she's like, you're welcome. And it doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. But this lasted with her as it should, uh, because she was sexually assaulted by another child. Mm-hmm. Quite blank, period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Carrie said... After this event, I wanted more truth. I wanted access to the seekers that were hidden within me, the anger, the pain, the fear, the joy, the relief. I wanted to be okay for me to be messy, to be wrong, to be bad. I couldn't feel my feelings at home. I couldn't share them with anyone. So I set out on a journey to find places where my feelings would be accepted and my secrets could be told, even in code. I was willing to be whoever I needed to be, but I knew I had to be someone other than myself. Mm. And this is how acting began to save my life. The characters I played became my necessary escape into messy creativity, big, bold feelings and living out loud. In every character, I got to be somebody else. And that person got to be a real human being. In fact, it was my job to try to make her so. Each role I took on gave me permission to escape the trappings of my family's dance and explore what being human could feel like. Each character needed me to feel deeply, to take risk, and to tell their truth. Mm-hmm. Part four, it's all an act. 
When Carrie turned 13 years old, she started going to spin school, this exclusive all-girls college prep um, that was in the Upper uh, East Side. Manhattan. When she said Gwyneth Paltrow went there, I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow, like, old money. You're like, oh, yeah, you I understand. Gwyneth Paltrow? Hmm? You understand how elite, elite you mean. That's elite. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> so she said she actually worked alongside Gwyneth in a production of A Midsummer's Night Dream. And Wallace Spence, the administrative assistant, Holly recommended Carrie for a role of a young black woman in an interview with a vampire. And although Carrie did not get the role, she impressed the casting director so much um, that the casting director helped Carrie to get an agent. Carrie acknowledges how this um, changed the up. trajectory of her career. right? Mm-hmm. And, and it, it set her up in a privileged way because most actors have to really work hard to get an agent. And she didn't have to. She just had to make a few phone calls. Mm-hmm. She would then go on to sign a three-year contract with an uh, agency, um, J. Michael Bloom's agency. So Carrie starts going on auditions. These auditions are not as fun as she thought they'd be. She was being scrutinized, evaluated, and dismissed. And it was intimidating. Acting was supposed to be a safe place, but now it was becoming tainted. Financial success was starting to become the driving force because she could sense her parents' worry without even knowing where it was coming from. She started to internalize these feelings and they began to attack her self-esteem. In 1989, Carrie started working for a theater company based out of Mount Sinai Hospital's Adolescent Health Center in New York City. It's called Um, the STAR program, serving teens through arts resources. This program allowed them to travel around the tri-state area during peer-to-peer theater performances to educate young people on safer sex practices with the goal of mitigating the spread of HIV. She worked for them like 10 years. The kids wrote the skits, the music, and choreographed the dance routines, and they tailored each um, performance to the age of the students and the issues that were relevant to the community. But through this circle of artists, she discovered a trusted community of peers who she said provided her with her first experience of the power of found family. I learned how to be in my body and be in my truth as Carrie in this small pocket of creative community. And it was phenomenal acting training. Um, So working for this um, organization also develops uh, developed Carrie's interest in activism. Um, one year, Carrie got caught in the lie by her mother. And as a result, Carrie was determined to never disappoint her mother again. Not by not lying, but by <laughs> never, ever, ever again getting, getting caught. caught. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she became a better liar, more calculating, more convincing, more immersive. She said she built an entire imaginary world around her (laughs) lies and refined her pretend identity as an innocent good girl who followed the rules. Carrie was living a double life. Okay. Yeah, she was living a double life um, and she was also preparing to be an actress Mm -hmm. on the big screen. Yeah. An actress that perhaps would not know when reality started and fiction ended. Oh, is that like um, 
Britney Spears. Spears. I know you go. <laughs> How dare you? How can I not? Britney was like, okay. I was method acting, I think. <laughs> I just popped out. Okay. <laughs> um, by 15, Carrie had much more to protect than a visit to her friend's house, which is what she got in trouble for lying about. She said um, by daytime, she was a model adolescent imparting wisdom and uh, peer education to teens all over the city, participating in government and other extracurricular activities and bringing home solid grades by night. On the other side, she was lying about boyfriends, parties, drugs, alcohol, going out to New York City clubs on school nights. She was (laughs) in the streets, okay? (laughs) Carrie saw herself as taking care of her parents the way they took care of her, parsing out the truth in ways they could handle it. Because Mm. that's what she felt they were doing to her. Now, let's jump back quickly to her father's IRS issues. Remember that? Mm -hmm, Um, A company he worked for was being investigated. Well, one time she was on an elevator with her parents and her mom mentions to her father some man's name or Mm -hmm. name. And Carrie says, who is that? Mm-hmm. Girl, they and they ignore her like, like, she, like she ain't say nothing. I've been in this situation. It's like, <laughs> did I even say anything? Everybody acting like I didn't say anything. Oof. Am like I crazy? She, yeah. <laughs> and how, how, exactly. That's exactly how you feel. Mm-hmm. The, maybe I never said it. Maybe I only <laughs> said that in my head. Okay. <laughs> Yikes. Anyway, Mm -hmm. um, so a time when Carrie was in college, she would eventually learn that her father was pleading guilty to the IRS investigation. And that investigation involved real estate issues, drug dealers Mm -hmm. and tax evasion. And their lawyer had hoped that Carrie would write a letter defending her dad and detailing the emotional suffering he had already experienced. Um, so that could help lighten the sentence. And when Carrie reached out to the lawyer, he learned she learned that he knew so much about her life and she never even knew he existed. Mm-hmm. Her father would go on, would not go to jail. Um, the letter, maybe the letter worked. And instead he got community service and penalties. Carrie knew she had to go to college. Her family, her mother's family, they were all college bound folks. I think on her dad's side as well. Um And she hadn't and her mother hadn't yet saw the value of pursuing acting full force. Who was it that was telling her to be the actor's um, attorney? Is that another book? Mm, I thought that was. Oh, yeah. No, that Jada wanted to be either a lawyer or actress. And they said, was that true with Carrie also? Mm. No, no, she didn't want to be it. But somebody told her, I think I think this is book. somebody told her to be an attorney for the Yes, yes, yes. Was that in this book? Yeah, that was in this book. Okay. Like it was a more secure career path. Yes, yes. So school was on her mother's radar, on her family's radar. Um, And so even though she knew she had to go to school, her star was rising, according to her agents. And now Mm -hmm. was not the time to leave for school. When um, she was asked to audition for a film, Jefferson in Paris. Carrie decided that if she didn't get that role, she'd go after school. But if she did get the role, she'd defer school. The role went to the same actress that got the interview with a vamp- um, the interview with a vampire role, and that was Thandawe Newton. And Carrie um, went off to George Washington University in Washington, D.C. In college, uh, Carrie fell deeply in love with the craft of 
acting. With her scholarship, she was being paid to learn how to act. The focus was on the process and less on booking jobs. Eventually, she said, I started to see auditions as simply a gift and an opportunity. They became moments in time when I had full permission to use my imagination to play, create, discover, and just have fun. They were invitations to spend 15 minutes of the day doing what I love and then letting go of the results. By the time she was halfway through college, Carrie learned she wanted to be a professional actor. At this point, she has cemented it. This is what I want to do when I grow up. She didn't um, she didn't want the fame so much. She just wanted to be appreciated for her skill in the craft, uh, for being able to um, pour herself into an imaginary character and become invisible. Mm-hmm. Life after college was filled with um, plenty of additions and rejections to match. Um, Carrie would uh, decide to go to India to study performance in a place where theater was sacred. She wanted to explore the world before going back to the same bedroom that made her frightened as a child. She also decided mm-hmm. she wanted to get closer to God. And at the end of college, she so she ends up applying for a program where she can study Kathakali, I think it's called, um, uh, in South India. She said the captivating theater, theatrical tradition of India where actors paint their faces in enormous, often green mask lit countenances and move across the stage in highly stylized movements with almost operatic emotions. And although she didn't actually, so I don't know, I think she spent a year here. Um, She didn't actually get to work on stage in this uh, style of acting. Um, It, the way they do it, they said it requires way more time than the time she spent at it. So this wasn't going to happen for her. Um, when it was time to leave India, she said, I felt I had done what I came to do. I had grounded myself in this ancient tradition. These art forms had put me more fully in my body and closer to my truth. Part of that truth was that I was more, I had more love, respect and reverence for theater than ever before. Mm. Developing this deeper connection with myself, as well as an awareness that I was longing to get back on stage to participate firsthand in the magic seated within me, the knowledge that I was ready. After her time in um, India, Carrie was ready to work. She got um, with another agency and just started auditioning. However, she was receiving rejections and rejections and more rejections. Um, She determined she needed to find some other measure for her success. It couldn't just be that you get the job, that you get the role. It had to be more because she was doing her best and still losing auditions to factors that were not within her control. What a mature way to look at it. I think Mm -hmm. that showed the foundation that she had from her parents, even though their um, home life wasn't always ideal. She had a self-respect about her and she really controlled the agency that she possessed in a way that I thought I reflected her confidence, like a a natural, healthy confidence. She was like, I'm losing these roles because... You know, maybe I'm not light enough or whatever, or mm-hmm. thin enough or heavy enough. So 
let me get another me- metrics together before this business ruins me mm-hmm. <laughs> or tries to ruin mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Yeah. So she was going to agencies and some of the agency before she signed would ask her to make these changes. They like fix your teeth, um, lose some more weight, do this, do that. They had requirements of her. So it was good that she was able to um, stand in her who she was, even though she was battling insecurities and self-esteem um, um, throughout her career early on and throughout, really. She started to refocus her definition of success on process rather than results. She said, had I tried my best, had I given it my all, if I could honestly answer yes to both of those questions and it still did not go my way, then out of necessity, I had to have faith in the belief that I was collecting no's on the way to yeses. And if the yeses never came, then I would have, then I would know that it was time to move on. And she gave herself a year. And that's reasonable. Mm-hmm. At its root, root, auditioning is about solving someone's problem. Writers, directors, and producers want to tell a story, but they need people to embody it and bring it to life. You can either be the exact right person for the role, or if you're not, your audition might provide clarity to who they're looking for. Eventually, Mm -hmm. I would come to understand that this view of auditioning, that it was the way to be of service. Auditioning was a way to be of service. As an emotional crutch and comfort for her audition of rejections, Carrie slipped back into her college behavior. I don't think we talked about this, but she had um, she was binge eating and exercising. She was uh, I compulsively. Think, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. And I think she talked about um, being um, uh, she she also talked about. Not just those tink things, but um, well, I'm gonna leave it's it fasting for days. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave it. Um, she chose something she could easily mask so she could maintain her facade of perfection. Everybody ate, everybody exercised, so you could hide that. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't. And then at one point, she asked her family, "You know, you think I'm doing?" They was like, "No, you. Everybody exercised, so you're fine. Mm-hmm. It's no problem." Part five. In 1999, Carrie landed the role of Lanisha Brown in James Jim McKay's Our Song. She said she will never be as good as she was in that first film. She said Our Song was nominated for an Indie Spirit Award as well as a Grand Jury Prize. She was very proud of her work in that, as you can mm-hmm. tell. Next up. Save the Last Dance. When Carrie read the role of Chanel in Save the Last Dance, she knew she was up against a high-profile pop star, but she wanted it and she fought for it. She never said who that was, though, right? Mm-mm. <laughs> uh, even who though you think it was, I don't know who was high-profile back then. That would have been the two thousands pop star. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to think about this. Carrie okay. going to get the answer to that because mm-hmm. she be finding the stuff. Okay. She be doing. <laughs> yeah, We the already research. figured out who Jada, that abusive boyfriend Jada mm-hmm. had. We done figured it out. Answer y'all catch up. Found. Okay. Mm-hmm. Told y'all that's the stuff we need to be talking about. And she about. calls him Lance in the book. Yes. That's a clue. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Anyway, 
That's all we gonna say. <laughs> Even though she had um, back-to-back film releases, Carrie was still working at a restaurant, substitute teaching in New York public yeah. schools, and teaching so I've yoga. I've always known that during uh, Save the Last Stand, she was a substitute teacher. Oh, okay. Um, but I thought she was like working to be a teacher and happened upon an audition. Oh. I didn't know this was like a way she was obviously supporting herself while acting. Mm-hmm. As a lot of actors do till yeah. they get in there. Carrie chose to maintain secondary employment so she could be selective about her role, um, her role choice. Um, she was she wanted to pick roles that repre- represented women well. Uh, her next film was Lift. She played a character called Nisi, who was a consummate shoplifter. Carrie had never stole anything before, so she decided to rehearse for her role by going to um, boost her first uh, item. It was an apple. Uh, She remembered the feeling she had as she first uh, stole this apple. (laughs) She could then use what she learned in this role. She also watched the movie Ordinary People, read uh, My Mother, Myself by Nancy Friday, um, as she took in this information, her issues with her mother finally came into focus and they came in fast. For her role in Lyft, Carrie was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award. Then there was She Hate Me, a Spike Lee film Carrie played um Fatima Goodrich, a lesbian who wants to bear a child and coerce coerces, coerces her. <laughs> former fiance to donate his sperm, which she uses to conceive. Now to act out the birthing scene, what would you do? Well, she reached out to her mother to find out her birthing story. Now she says everybody knows their birthing story, but I I don't don't know my birthing story like that. Do you? Do I? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Oh, no. You mean the story of when I was born? Yes, Uh, yes, yes. No, that's a good question. Mm. But I've never been concerned. I'm sure I could ask my mom. (laughs) (laughs) My mom would be like, I forgot. I don't know. That was a long time ago. (laughs) So I don't know, Carrie, this one you could have let your mom go on. This this is not (laughs) something that they be like telling all the time. I don't think a lot of families do that. (laughs) Anyway. so she reached out to her mom. She called her mom um, while she was in the hair and makeup trailer and asked her mom. Um, it was a story she said that she was unfamiliar with. Her mother seemed surprised by the request and Carrie could hear her mother's impulse to withhold. But without warning, she dove in. She said, um, Carrie was born January 31st, 1977, the night before the final night of Roots aired, the final episode of Roots aired. Her dad loved theater so much. He and the nursing staff were in the waiting room and her mother was in the delivery room with the doctor. There is a family joke that she was almost named Kuta Kente. (laughs) And that is the character from Roots. Her mother talked about holding Carrie for the first time, the look of pride in her father's eyes and the relief she felt when she cried, when Carrie, the baby, cried. Carrie believes her mother was likely thinking of her stillborn child. Carrie was so grateful to her mother because she had told her mother more than she'd 
her mother had told her more than she'd ever heard before. And Carrie was able to use that emotion when it was her turn to perform the labor and birth in the film. When she would later watch the film for the first time, she could see the character becoming her mother, awash in emotions, giving in to her um, the way her mother did. As an educator, Carrie has spent years asking young people to weigh the consequences. She was schooled in the ways of prevention, and yet here she was sitting in the waiting room using false data, email address, name, address to go through with an abortion. She was a working actor, but not yet famous. She had been in a few magazines and her star was on the rise. So she wanted to maintain privacy. But she she was in she was in there beating herself up about how could she make it here because she had done so much and um done so much to talk about that even as a teen and mm-hmm. through her advocacy as well. As she laid on the table about to go through the process, the nurse said, Do you know who you look like? Mm. And she said her real name. Carrie says she believes the lady was trying to comfort her. Now, I I think the lady knew who she was, okay? (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I ain't gonna lie. Obviously, the lady was like, Carrie, I know that's you, girl. That's what she was doing. (laughs) Carrie, you you, you you missed that one. You ain't fooling nobody. That woman knew who you were. Your name was not Tisha Arnold. (laughs) Or Tisha Jackson, whatever you got on this sheet. Whatever you put, that's not you. I know who you are. And she made a point to tell her, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so she had an abortion. Um, Before Carrie moved west, she had a tiny apartment in New York City, um, which she, it sounds like she used that, uh, allow other people to come in and out and move and live with her during their transitional time while I she was know, living it's in New like York. just like a place for friends only, though, to like crash. Yeah, yeah. People that yeah. she had um, worked with in the mm-hmm. past for some, but it was her place and she allowed other people to stay with her at some point. Um, anyway, she would then move off to um, California. She made up her mind that she was going to, when she moved to California, she made up her mind that she was now going to focus wholly on her career. She's going to spend her time um, auditioning, um, taking acting classes, reading scripts. Um, And when she wasn't engaged in her craft, she was in therapy so she could unravel her issues with food, exercise, and body image. Mm -hmm. In 2004, Carrie starred in Against the Ropes, where she played Meg Ryan's co-worker and confidant. She could see that she was becoming, she was creating a new niche for herself and she ain't really like that. So she was like. No, as the black sidekick. mm -hmm. She didn't want to just be the black sidekick. She said, I don't want that. Mm -hmm. Although she was very grateful to work across Meg Ryan. Mm -hmm. That's great. But I don't want to, I don't necessarily need to do this type of thing anymore. She said (laughs) she stopped that right away. And she Mm -hmm. said she wanted to be a lead. It's not that she wanted to be the star of the film, but she didn't want to be an accessory to a white woman's journey. She wanted Mm -hmm. to play women with agency who were living their own pivotal moments. Um, This wish allowed her to perform opposite Hollywood's most esteemed black actress. Come on, Kari, name a few of them people she done work with. She's well, actors or actresses, actors or anybody, actors, actresses. Yeah, I can't no, remember. No actors. 
Okay, so Forrest Whitaker, yes. we of course know. Jamie Foxx, we of <laughs> course know. Uh, Regina Hall, we of course know. The men, Regina the King. men, the men. Sorry, y'all, Regina King. Ooh, now you yes. know they different. Stop it. <laughs> it was ridiculous to me. But she might have worked with Regina Hall. I really don't know. Chris had some great Don Cheadle, Eddie Murphy, Samuel L. Jackson, and the Wayans brother. Those are mm-hmm. people she worked with. In 2004, she got the role of Della B. Robinson, Ray Charles' wife in the movie Ray. She says she read in a magazine that women would, um, um, that worked in the industry would bring uh, baked goods to the set. Okay, to the movie set. So she was yeah, like, so she's like, I bought y'all some cookies. They was like, these cookies say Oreo on them. She's like, shut up, eat the cookies. <laughs> to the and screen she got the role. test. To the screen test she brought <laughs> To it. the screen test. And she mm-hmm. got that role, as Carrie said. Carrie speaks of Jamie Foxx as one of the most wonderful lead actors she'd worked with. And she said he set an example of how lead actors should um, behave on set. Mm-hmm. or act or engage with others. And when anyone complimented her as a lead actor, she would always give credit to Jamie Foxx for setting that best example. When she worked with Jamie, she learned that acting was about discovery, about messy, flawed humanity, and about being open to something new each and every time, and not about being perfect or doing the same thing 20 times in a row. So she would try to create the same emotion. Jamie Mm -hmm. told her, no, create new emotions, stretch, go further, go deeper. Ray was Carrie's first big film, and Jamie was an Oscar contender. We know Jamie won for that, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as well he should. So that um, put Carrie in line to be introduced to Oscar parties, Golden Globes. She was now receiving star treatment. She had worked next to an Oscar winner. And then she overheard that producer says she might be a contender for best supporting. A- <laughs> Overhearing this made her anxious. She felt the weight of expectations. She didn't want to be in a race because she didn't think she could win. She thought and about... And she just didn't like the politics around who wins an Oscar. Yeah. Um, this is something a that a lot of actors and actresses and Monique famously um, butted up against. But this type of campaigning for mm-hmm. your win, she's like, if you good, you good. Why yeah. you got a campaign? It's kind of icky. Yeah. This idea that she couldn't win put her in mind of her father's failures, failed adventures, and she didn't want to disappoint people. She knew mm-hmm. what that looked like. With Ray, she made the cover of Essence, which brought out her old patterns of perfectionism and self-esteem. In addition, she learned about her mother's breast cancer diagnosis. It was then um, caught early, but her parents, in their standard form, tried to keep it from her to protect her. Yeah, she didn't know until after they. It, it kind of was no longer a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It hadn't met- metastasized. So. Mm-hmm. And then the last king of Scotland. She played opposite Forrest Whitaker as the wife, Kay Amin. And in this first role, this is a, excuse me, this is the first role she didn't have to audition for. She watched Forrest Whitaker disappear into his character. She says she never saw him the whole time they filmed. This was the first time she had visited the continent of Africa. She was in Uganda. Um, and she used that same dialect coach um, that Forrest used while she was there. And she stopped speaking in her American accent. 
She said, if we gonna sound bad, sound bad, we can sound bad together. If we sound good, we sound good together. Alexis, what do you think of Forrest Whitaker's um, African accents? Oh, oh. (laughs) So I didn't see that movie, so I'm only thinking (laughs) Black Panther. The Black Panther. I don't know. I don't remember it. Okay. I think it's diplomatic. Great actor, Listen, great producer, I'm a great writer, great creator, Mr. Forrest Whitaker. I'm going to let our supporters from the continent comment on that. Let's see. How about yeah, that? Let us know. Y'all tell us, how did he do in um, mm-hmm. The Last Kick of Scotland? You know, we're really big in Botswana. <laughs> Come on, Botswana. We like a top 10 podcast would, in Botswana. Please. Thank you. I'm a, I would like to go there. Hey, y'all. Hey. Yeah. Uh, Travel Bureau. Botswana. Look out. <laughs> Unless it's for the ladies detective agency. Then don't call us. <laughs> That's where I learned, learned my love and appreciation of Botswana. Okay. From that Okay. Book. Carrie Washington did what? <laughs> <laughs> Don't be dismissing Botswana like that. Anyway, I'm not. I'm okay. dismissing Lady Detective Agency. Let's get that clear. Um, she loved and embraced the idea of disappearing into a character. It was one of the things that she had come to love about acting. By the time Carrie was working on The Last King of Scotland, she saw herself as a working character actor, but she wasn't yet a household name. People barely knew she was the same actress in the film she played. Each <laughs> film had a different audience, but she was definitely black famous. Mm-hmm. Okay. Forrest won yeah. an Academy Award for his role and Carrie would joke that if I'm cast as your wife I could help you get an Oscar <laughs> she had worked with two of the best men in the business now let's get into scandal you ready for this Carrie? Right, too scandalous okay listen <laughs> we ain't gonna talk a lot about it um, <laughs> during the writer's strike in Hollywood Carrie was able to work directly with the Barack Obama campaign for presidency by participating in this campaign. Um, she was able to reject her need for control and professionalism as she focused on civic engagement. She she was moving around with them. She only had that uh, a T-shirt, an Obama campaign T-shirt, no mm-hmm. makeup, trailer, nothing. She was just out there. And so um, she... When Obama won and was sworn into office, he offered a role, offered her a role in his administration. And as and a, this was before she started on Scandal. Yeah. I thought it came after because I remember at the time thinking, Ugh, how are you running around with the president and playing, you know, a tart, as I learned in last week's <laughs> book, a tart. <laughs> well, it did happen at the same time, but she actually had the role. She was working with Obama's team first. First, yes. And then she had to tell them two things are going on. I'm going to be on a network sitcom where I'm having an affair with the president, light work. And then what was the second thing? She was into Django Unchained. Oh, yeah. I'm also going to play in a movie where we blow up a plantation. Y'all mm-hmm. good? Mm-hmm. You know, let me know. Yep, yep, yep. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. Yep. That's how I, <laughs> they said, um, we selected you because you were a bold advocate and a brave artist. But before she auditioned for those roles, she performed in her first play on Broadway, Race. Did you see that play? Race? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
No. Mm-mm. It's also on TV. And I watched mm. that. That was very good. Oh, and that is where um, she met her. I hope I'm getting that right. But that's where she met her now husband, Namdi. I think that's his name. And he is not difficult to look at. <laughs> no, he's not. Okay. Mm-mm. That's her man. Carrie said that <laughs> every black woman in Hollywood auditioned for the role of who, Carrie? Olivia Pope. Olivia Pope. She said they knew it was once in a lifetime opportunity. It would be the first time in 37 years a black woman would appear as the lead in a network drama. I think of Diane Carroll. Like, who was before that? Who's after that? No, no, it's, mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a, what's that other woman's name? Wow. Escapes me. That's not Diane. I think it is her. Okay, go Thea? ahead. Thea? Is that, <laughs> you thinking about, for real? Is that, is that her name? <laughs> the comedian? No, not a comedian. No, not a comedian. No. Yeah, Alexis don't know who Thea is. If y'all know Thea, before Moesha, there was Thea, okay? Well, I don't know. Shout out to all the Thea heads, as the hive is called. Ooh, okay, the okay. I don't know what she's talking about, y'all. Okay. <laughs> She's making funnier. Okay, go ahead, Alexis. My bad. Okay. Anyway, when go she go Google Thea. Okay, when she got the news that the role was hers, she was with her now husband Namdi. Olivia Pope became an icon. A lot of Americans were all in. Okay, and she was right about them taking over social media for the first time in that way, where they really would tweet like live. The cast would tweet live during the show uh, running. It was just yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. revolutionary. It was in a lot I of had ways. Fun doing that. Anyway, <laughs> and there was the Django Unchained, Unchained, the pre-emancipation love story, the story of a black man who escapes enslavement, discovers freedom, rescues the woman he loves, and avenges the abuses he endured. Carrie knew how important it was to tell the story, and she wanted to have a voice in shaping the scenes so the images weren't objectifying the lead characters being salacious or gratuitous. During production, several scenes were cut and rewritten, one of the scenes was um, was that was eventually cut was the brutal rape scene. Another work that Carrie was quite proud of. The cast is well, she was proud that it was cut, but she she was of, happy that it was cut and proud of the movie. Yes, I want to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the cast of scandal became a family. They watched the initial pilot at um, Shonda Rhimes' house. Carrie didn't watch herself because she hadn't been in that pattern of watching herself. She struggled with her insecurities too much. But this show, this scandal would be on week after week and she could not not watch herself. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, The episode was picked up, but it was only picked up for six episodes, even though the standard was 22 a year. But um, having a black woman helm the show was a gamble they weren't fully ready to take on. At the suggestion of one of her Spence classmates, Carrie would go on to ask Shonda to ask the cast to sign up for Twitter and live tweet during the show. Fans of the show would call themselves gladiators. Uh, (laughs) Carrie's time on Scandal helped her to drop her mask and the cast was spending all their time together 
Through that experience, she learned to maintain and nurture authentic closeness and vulnerability, even embrace the limitations of intimacy with her parents. She said she would have been a a cast member that would go through. Y'all would be best friends mm -hmm. while the show or movie was being filmed. And then you never see Carrie again. But I agree that now I still see her with those um, old cast mates from Scandal from time to time. Mm -hmm. They seem to have a bond. Yeah. Yeah. She wanted to mimic the bond um, that the cast member of Friends was known to have. She said the cast of Scandal um, found an ease and fluidity with the veils and masks that they wore. She married her husband, Namdi, in 2013 in a small ceremony in Sun Valley, Idaho, at the home of friends. Carrie decided she did not want to have her father walk her down the aisle. She said it didn't, um, she didn't like the idea behind the ritual, and she didn't feel it properly represented her relationship with her father or her new husband. And when she told her mother, she said her father, her mother's response was that her father would be disappointed, but she didn't express her own feelings. Carrie will walk herself down the aisle and her father will walk down ahead of her. Well, no, that's not right. Like she, she, they walked halfway and then, yeah, he walked ahead of her, as you said, and, you know, and then she walked the rest of the way by herself. And I felt that was really symbolic of how your parents raised you, but she'd been grown and by herself and self-sufficient for a long time. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was a beautiful compromise where I think he so still too. got that role as a dad. Yeah. I think so too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Confirmation. Did you watch Confirmation, Carrie? Mm-mm. It's a feature film that was produced by Carrie's production company, Simpson Street. Confirmation is the Anita Hill story. Carrie was 14 years old when that story happened. And she said it was one of the times that her father and her mother disagreed in politics. The only time she remembers that. This but m- now her dad is like, yeah, y'all might have been right. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it was a different time. Mm-hmm. But history, history has shown some things. So revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, revealed. This mm-hmm. movie was the first time, her first time producing, and she felt that this story needed to be told. Um, what a great title for this t- uh-huh, story. By a black woman. So she was, um, she learned that there was another team of producers. So she suggested they work together. That way she ensured that she got the producing and had the voice in there of a black person. Black woman. Carrie was now famous, famous, y'all. Famous, famous. And the paparazzi were doing the things that paparazzi do. Hounding, stalking, getting a marriage certificate, the birth certificates of the children, using long lens cameras to uh, get pictures of their property. Whew. With Scandal and Django out in the same at the same time, Carrie was presented to the world. She was in the streets, y'all. She was famous, famous. Part six. Mm-hmm. Revelation. Now, let's jump back into that initial conversation. What did her mother reveal, Kari? Yeah, so now we're back in that scene we entered at the beginning of the book. And um there's an ancestry show on PBS. Alexis, you know this show mm-hmm. very well. Who hosts it? Um, Lou. Well, I don't know Doctors. why I don't want to call him Lou Gossett, but uh, Professor Henry Louis Gates. 
Junior. Ooh, see, mm-hmm. there we go. So um, he spoke to her and she was like, sure, let's dig into my ancestry. And she told her parents and they got weird. Fast. Mm. Why did you want to do that for? Uh-huh. Um, and so they sat her down and let her know that um, they were having a hard time having a baby conceiving. And so um, her father is not her biological father um, because they uh, used IVF, right? Mm-hmm. With the donors. Um, donation. So, yeah, this and her father, That remember, he was having panic attacks mm-hmm. around this time, learning that she was going to go on this ancestry show. Mm-hmm. And she was like, this is a time for me to show up for you, dad. No matter what the DNA, the DNA test proves, you're my father. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. And I thank you for everything you've done for me. You both, this will not change our bond, our love. And after this revelation, it was like a weight had been lifted off of everyone's shoulders. Her mom became her best friend. They started making up for lost time because they were pretending over this big secret and no doubt other things. It just it just set the tone for how they communicated in their family. And by being open and honest, she's in her 40s mm-hmm. and they're just now trusting mm-hmm. her with this. She's 40. Only because she was going on the show at this point. Mm-hmm. When she is revealed yeah. to her that her pet mother used a donor. Mm-hmm. And so they, they all got closer at this time. Mm-hmm. Carrie told her parents that their whole lives they had loved each other under false pretenses. Starting mm-hmm. today, you'll get to see that even though I know the truth, I love you. And turn to her dad. Now you'll get to feel what it's like to be loved unconditionally. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Carrie decided she wanted, though, to know or to find out who her biological father was. She tried to track down the doctor and nurse. Both had died. But then um, she asked her father for a paternity test and he refused. Um the Finding Roots team suggested that she take her own DNA test. And if her father's relatives were anywhere in the database, they would appear in connection to her family tree. The re- results revealed that she had no connections to her father, her, her paternal father. She knew that some of her father's family had even submitted DNA. So they should have came up if they existed, but none showed in her tree. She approached her father again to ask for the paternity test. And he told her, if you take this test, you will kill me. If you tell anyone, you will kill me. Carrie told him she didn't want him to die over this. She told her father that she understood why they made their choices, but those were not her choices. I don't want to lie about who Mm -hmm. I am. Her father said, you don't have to lie. Just don't ever talk about it. Shoot. Yeah, I agree with him, but that's just not her. Mm -hmm. That's not her. (laughs) He's like, you ain't got to lie. Just shut up. (laughs) (laughs) That's what he said. Eventually, Mm -hmm. after therapy, her father would agree to a DNA test. The results, there was a less than 1% chance her father was her biological father. Carrie said this knowledge felt more like an invitation than a loss. At the conclusion of this book, she still had not found her donor. Um donor. Um, And although she fantasizes about knowing him, she realizes she may never know. She feels like like throughout her career, there were um, indications that what does she call it? Cues that should have told her that there was something because she always felt a disconnect 
um, mm-hmm. with her family. But then the movie says she was in, there was always something about a father or or a couple that couldn't conceive. Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. So very revealing. So that's our story. But let me read this piece. What I'm learning to do in my life is accept the void. Let my dad who raised me be the center of his story. Let my biological donor be the center of his. While I focus on being the center of my own story and seeking a deeper truth for myself, my life is not about my donor nor about my parents. My life is my own. Let's take a quick break. All right, let's do it. Thank you so much for that thorough, compassionate, deep dive into Carrie Washington's memoir. What a story. And we'll talk about our verdict in just a moment. We'll even say if we recommend this book. But first, let's dive into our theme of the week. Now, the theme of the week is where we discuss a theme that centers on the book. And I was going back and forth. There are stories about um, donors and children finding out that they're one of like 500 siblings. Mm. And we've kind of all heard of these. Mm -hmm. I wanted to... um, attack or dissect another side of this obsession around genealogy uh, with a theme of the week titled Our Obsession with Ancestry Has Some Twisted Roots. Uh, Now my source (laughs) my source is a New Yorker from May 2nd, 2022. Um, Alexis, uh, you have uh, submitted your DNA samples to discover your roots. And you definitely spoke like Forrest Whitaker in a couple of his movies for a while as you wore um, garments from your native land. That's right. (laughs) You were method acting (laughs) a la Britney Spears. But why did you submit your DNA and how did it feel to get the breakdown of your lineage? Why did I submit my DNA? Just because it was a thing to do and I wanted to do it. I like to be a part of the crowd sometimes, but on the (laughs) outside. And then how did it feel to learn that you had so much Nigerian uh, ancestry and background? Can't see it. Um, I loved learning that. I but they're like I've heard so many tales about that's not really accurate or whatnot. Or um, there's a more accurate one that'll take you right back to your tribe. But I felt good knowing about it and seeing the the areas that it found you in. I, I just loved it. It just is mm-hmm. a piece of information to me. I didn't really do anything with it, but it was just really informative in my opinion. Yeah, this reminds me of a book we read, White Like Her, mm. where a woman found out that her mother was of mixed race and it completely uh, made her question her whole identity. <laughs> I found a lot of that story, which is relatable for many, ridiculous. <laughs> That's just me. That's just how I felt. Um, However, once I turned it on myself, like, what if I got my ancestry back and it said I was 60 percent Scottish? It might make you feel a way when you you feel like you have this identity and the test comes back and says differently. And I don't quite know how I feel about the potential for discomfort Mm. around my genealogy, Mm. what that says about me as a person Mm -hmm. and some of the prejudices that I feel I don't have. Do I have them? Mm -hmm. Well, let's dive into this theme because really these subjects 
are not cannot be separated from our current obsession with where we come from. Um, I thought this article started just brilliantly, so I'll read it. Can I say one um, thing before you jump into your article? Yeah, please. So I um, followed this woman who is Afro-Latina and she did the test. Her She she works for a company called Petal Like. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Anyway, mm-hmm. she works for them and it's a Latino um, organization and so you had a group of them took the test. So she just knew like she was like high percentage African origin. Her bubble was so bust. She was so disappointed when she found out the whole Spaniard. Yes. (laughs) She was so disappointed, devastated Mm -hmm. because she just, she just knew, she just knew, but the percentage of her um, Africanness was so small. It really hurt her feelings. So, that sounds ridiculous and I get it. <laughs> so I think of, um, I think too of, uh, like a lot of people want to trace their ancestry to, um, the first people who colonized America or oh. they have this political interest that they want to solidify with a test, <laughs> a test that cannot be disputed. You're going to get embarrassed then, every time. <laughs> every time. <laughs> And then um, you have people, uh, I think of my husband, who is Mexican, who does not look in a way that a lot of people expect a Mexican man to look. And a lot of times people go, oh, you don't even look Mexican. Listen, (laughs) or I've had people tell me, yeah, I think she's mixed like you. Whoa. Listen, (laughs) listen, listen, listen. I cannot explain where the offense comes from because I'm not comfortable yet putting that to words. Uh, but both of my parents are black. I'm a black American woman. And there is, I thought, a healthy pride that goes with that. I can speak for my husband and say that he has a very healthy pride in where um, his history comes from. So when someone questions that, especially when it's someone that knows you, yeah. but they just ain't met your parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, well, I don't even know if we know each other. Don't call me no more. <laughs> oh, God. It's just hard to explain. Wow. So let me read the, the front yeah, of this please. article. Very interesting. So this starts off like it's explaining Fort Knox. It says a mile into Utah's little Cottonwood Canyon headed east from Salt Lake City toward the um, ski slope. Several concrete arches open the face of a mountain behind doors designed to withstand a nuclear strike through tunnels blasted 600 feet into the rock in a vault. That's another 700 feet down lies. What do you think? Alexis? I don't know. What's that? There. Jewels, money, nope. <laughs> In a vault that that's another seven hundred feet down lies DNA. a trove stashed in steel cases, not gold or jewels, but microfilm. Millions of reels of microfilm. Really? And what do they contain? Billions of images of genealogical documents, an estimated quarter of all vital records on Earth. Who owns that collection? It is both owned and operated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is the largest physical archive of ancestry in the world owned by the Mormon and it's owned by the Mormon church. How do they, why Um, do they own it? How? Tell me more. Well, this is an open secret. I don't even think they ever tried to make it a secret, but uh, Mormons were pioneers in this DNA testing. Ancestry.com. Okay. okay. (laughs) 
Yeah. So uh, what this article tackles, though, is from origin stories to blood purity statues. Uh, humans have long enlisted genealogy to serve their own purposes. Yes, of course. So we make up the story and then we want um, the genealogy to just back it mm-hmm. up of who we are and what that means. Um it also talks about 23andMe, which is a very popular company um, that started with a seed of, I think, $3.5 billion. Um, they've even partnered with Airbnb. They're making genealogy cool, like uh, travel as unique as your DNA. That, that's the tagline. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, I've seen that. <laughs> and Ancestry.com, which boasts more than 3 million subscribers, and the, which is the nation's largest um, genetic database, was purchased for $4.7 billion dollars in 2020. Wow. People just send in swabs of themselves yeah. into this company just to, just to um, know what narrative they want to tell people at parties. You know, I'm Nigerian. I, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. So there are benefits to this, right? Um, from the doctor's office to the passport office, Ancestry inflects the social Uh, material, legal, and medical conditions of nearly everybody's life. There can be some real benefits to knowing uh, what's in your lineage. And the stories we tell ourselves about our ancestors have the power to shape us, to shape how we walk, how we carry ourselves, and what we expect from ourselves and our family. But there's modern uses and dangers that go along with that. Um, so it talks about origin stories also help some lineages claim power over others. Yes, of course. Ruling mm-hmm. dynasties have always claimed either a god as their forefather or saying that they were sons of heroes. Inca emperors trace their pedigree to the sun and Roman rulers to Venus. So, you know, my authority cannot be disputed. Do you know where I come from? Okay. (laughs) Sure. And this uh, hierarchy is nearly universal based on ancestry, this this hierarchy based on ancestry. It's important to consider this um, when defining our genealogical knowledge, recording it and accessing it. Um, Transplanted to the Americas after 1492, the Iberian obsession with genealogy purity informed the development of a system. Do you remember what that system was or is, Alexis? No. Cast and race. For more information on that, no, I threw that question at you. You know very well. And I formed it weird too. But um, I'm just going to read that one more time. So in 1492, um, the Iberian Peninsula, those uh, conquerors, those travelers, those colonizers became obsessed with genealogical purity. And that their thinking and written transcripts um, and systems informed what is now race. For more on that, read Stamped. Mm-hmm. Come on, just read it. Yeah. It's not even that long. Also, Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Also, there's a lot of caste and race uh, when we think of Nazi ideology, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. Um, starting in the 18th century, this uh, genealogical authority increasingly shifted from religious and family figures to government officials who certify births, uh, license marriages, decree divorces, register deaths, and probate wills. So now it's having an active effect in people's everyday life. Identity documents emerged in tandem with theories advanced uh, by practitioners of race science. Can you think of a race science? Oh, it's on the eugenics. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. 
Yeah. So people are like, well, according to these documents, this is who you are. And now we even we have um, a granddaughter from this thinking or grandson called Caucasian people, Mm. which makes no sense. To give an example, um, (laughs) a pair of Supreme Court rulings about naturalization played on this psycho association between ancestry and race. In 1922, the Supreme Court determined that a Japanese immigrant could not become a U.S. citizen because he wasn't and ancestrally Caucasian. Y'all, Caucasian makes no sense as a term. Um, Of course, you can be from the Caucasus Mountains, but that's not even what Caucasian means. Um, But they said this man was not Caucasian, so he's not white. But then (laughs) a North Indian immigrant who, according to the race science of the period, was Aryan and thus Caucasian could not naturalize in America either because he didn't look white. And that sounds just so stupid. (laughs) Yeah. The foolishness of it all. (laughs) Today's addiction uh, with websites and, you know, package DNA kits rest on deep, if not always acknowledged assumptions of the the fixity of status, race, ethnicity and nationality. Like these things are all natural, true and indisputable. Uh, when quite frankly, a couple of them are just made up constructs Mm -hmm. that reinforce a system of people ruling over other people. So ancestry doesn't simply have power in the emotional and psychological respects that a lot of people describe it in, um, but in critical ways, it's an instrument of power. Um, The origins of modern day testing are also very um, interesting. Uh, The emergence of Mormons as drivers of the modern genealogy Mm. industry exemplifies their interconnections. In 1894, the president of the Mormon church, Wilford Woodruff, enjoyed members um, to trace their genealogy genealogies as far as they can and to be sealed to their fathers and mothers. The church sponsored um, Genealogical Society of Utah was established a few months later, coinciding with the formation of lineage organizations founded by WASPs, uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, self-styled Anglo-Saxons in the face of surging immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. So you have people coming all over Europe and people wanted to say, well, I'm not Italian. (laughs) I'm Anglo-Saxon. I'm not Irish necessarily. (sighs) I am directly part of the Anglo-Saxon. That means I was a descendant of the people that formed this nation. So people wanted something to bite into to claim that. The church has long held that the more people, Mormon or not, engaged in genealogical genealogy. Sorry, that's so hard for me to say repeatedly. Um, But the more people engaged in this testing, the closer everyone draws to God's plan. That's how the church feels. But Mormons were also taught that Blacks were cursed descendants of Cain. Even though, hashtag footnote, period, even though Black people descended from Ham's other son, Cush, and probably also Put, uh, whose descendants settled in Africa, People still like to say, well, Cain was cursed, so black people are Mm -hmm. cursed. That's not biblically accurate, but whatever. So the church began admitting black men to the priesthood only in the 1970s, closer to the 1980s. Um, And so and that was like a year after Brigham Young University granted an honorary degree to Alex Haley. And we know everything Alex Haley's done, Mm -hmm. Roots, helping Malcolm X write his autobiography, a lot of stuff. So, um, So the truth is, 
using ancestry in place of race or ethnicity as has become widely wide or has become widespread may mm-hmm. sidestep some problems but it opens up others and all genealogies are selective often by design kinship terms and naming practices single out certain family members as more consequential than others it's like how a lot of black americans say we descended from kings well do you really believe everyone in our ancestry was part of a monarchy. Who did the monarchy rule over? You know what I mean? <laughs> so even genetic tests offer selective accounts of a person's ancestry. And that's why mm-hmm. you can test with 23andMe, Ancestry.com and perhaps get different results. We know that race is a social construct, but we need to acknowledge the ways in which ancestry is too. This article goes on to say, um, genealogy is a technique as a technique may bring individual rewards, but as a historical paradigm, it has tended to serve those in power and such effects are not diminishing in our time. Elite colleagues are recruiting first generation students, but continue to grant special admission to legacies. And so that article again is our obsession with ancestry has some twisted roots. It's from the New Yorker, May 2nd, 2022. That's our theme of the week. Kari, thank you so much for presenting that. Very interesting. Now this thing, this dungeon all the way in the <laughs> that, why is that there? Why? Who are they keeping that secret for what reason? I mean, it's, it's not necessarily secret, a secret, but why are they keeping it there? But it's secure because this is now bio information. Mm, and true. just again, tangentially, um, let's compare it to clear at the airport Mm -hmm. or the new palm system that Amazon has where you can pay with your palm. If you look at Alexis on YouTube, you see she's obviously signed up for that. I'm ready. The problem is um, identity (laughs) theft is prevalent. But when someone steals your credit card, what do you do? You call the bank. You cancel that card and you get another. Mm -hmm. When someone steals your DNA information or your biometric information, what in the world can you do? Get a new hand? Get new eyeballs? No, of course not. That's TV stuff. That system is forever, that information is forever compromised. Um, So it is really necessary. It also goes into, while some companies are mining our body in this way, information about our body and we're letting them for convenience. There are other companies who are mining the way we think Mm -hmm. and the way we can be convinced. Um, I think of Facebook, who is very much um, on the top of people's minds when it comes to privacy, but they're not the only ones. Um, Think of how good chat GPT is. That's because we as a society, we're not that mm, we're not that unique. And the way that we think can be studied, predicted and um, maneuvered. It can be manipulated. Uh, So that's why this information, this um, this DNA record of so many people, the largest DNA record in the world has to be securely stored. That makes sense. That makes sense. And really, when you think about it, once they sent you the results of that test, why do they need it? Why do they need it? They should just burn that. Girl, I want to say there's like an option. There's no need to. And keep people have it. thoughts about that. Mm-hmm. There's no need reason to keep it. You have the data, but in order to get the results, that's what you give in return. Mm. I think there's an option though for you to um, not keep that. Anyway, anyway, thank Whatever you. Whatever you got to say to convince yourself. <laughs> Just thank kidding. you. I don't know. That was very interesting. <laughs> thank you for sharing that. Now let's jump into our verdict, Kari. What is your final verdict of thicker than water and would you recommend it? 
When we started making the schedule, this is the last book of the season for us. Um, And we always finish with a celebrity memoir. But so many interesting celebrity memoirs were coming out, um, Jada Pinkett's, Britney Spears, that we we really backloaded our, our schedule with these memoirs. And I was not looking forward to it. After finishing Carrie's book, I felt like maybe memoir is like my favorite <laughs> genre of nonfiction. <laughs> Because whether you agree with someone or not, it's like stepping into someone's shoes and living the life that they are allowing you to see for a time or that period, at least. And that is so fascinating to me. Um, I also thought Carrie's memoir is very focused on Carrie Mm -hmm. in a way that is not narcissistic, but it gives the correct attention to the subject. So when we read Spare at the beginning of the season, Britney Spears, Jada Pinkett, a lot of people read these memoirs to see what these people have to say about other people. So now we don't just want to know your life. We want to know about the lives of people around you. True. Um, I think Carrie's husband could probably write his own memoir about where he comes from and the way his career has developed. It is really, again, fascinating. But her memoir is about her. And you know what? And I respected that. She didn't even talk about her husband because she had an episode where they broke up and that's not included in here. And it is your right. When we read Mariah Carey's memoir. Now, if you want to know Mariah Carey business, it's some stuff that we as lambs all know. That ain't in her memoir. Because <laughs> she don't want to talk about it. And I love that. I love that. This is your story. How come you got to uh, divulge more than you think prudent? So uh, Carrie does not go into all that because that's not really part of her story Mm-mm. either. And the title Thicker Than Water gives the book a theme that it's really focused on, which is who she is, where she comes from and who she is today and how her family has influenced that. And that's what this book is. It, it, I mean, she does talk about her husband. She does have a couple paragraphs that show you she loves her family, her children. Mm-hmm her husband, but that's not what this is about. I even remember the long-term relationship she had with someone before her husband, and that's given a throwaway (laughs) sentence also, um, only in as much as it serves the theme of the book, Mm -hmm. which is the development of Kerry Washington. And again, not a narcissistic way. It's a very approachable story, and I would definitely recommend it. I I thoroughly enjoyed this book. I did not want to read it <laughs> because I felt like I was a little burnt out. <laughs> um, and of Mice and Men was such a short book. I gave myself a few days not to read at all. And then I was like, oh, I got to hurry up and finish this mm-hmm. book before the show. And I couldn't put it down. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, really well done. What about you, Alexis? What did you think of Thicker Than Water, a memoir by Carrie Washington? And would you recommend this book? So these memoirs we've been reading, my goodness, the range on them. The range. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well put. Mm -hmm. From the jump, from beginning to end, you know, this is about Carrie. This isn't about anybody else. Her family is in there. Her parents are in there. And I'm like this at the, when I was first reading, I was like, is this, she's talking a lot about her parents, but really it's what she got from her parents to be who she is today. And that Mm -hmm. I was like, got it understand it because when we talk about ourselves and we're talking about how we are who we are our parents play a huge role in that so it includes your parents when we talk about how we develop in our um, to who we are today because we got to talk about the experiences of our youth she talked about her parents but she didn't dive too deep into her parents she just hit the high notes so I appreciated that 
and and has it talked about that effect on her life and the mask they wore, which created mm-hmm. the mask that she wears and has worn. And um, so I really liked her story and I like the words that she used. I read a lot of sections of her work because I just love how she said it. She said it very well. Mm -hmm. And I'd rather hear it from her than hear it from myself. So I would recommend her book, especially to those who want to hear about um, their their scandal fellow gladiators. (laughs) Yes, their uh, scandal head, Olivia Pope. This is the one. All right. Thank you, Alexis. And what are we reading next week? Okay, so our books are done for the year, okay? The season next week, we're going to do a wrap-up where we talk about our faves, our not-so-faves. We're doing the thing next week, y'all. We're going to be out for the rest of the year. Come on. Yes, we will still have episodes, especially on YouTube. And a special shout-out to everyone who watches us on yes, YouTube. Hey, y'all. We hit a couple milestones over there. We are super yes, excited. Yes, we are. Congratulations. Um, so watch our ads. Turn off your ad blockers when you watch us on YouTube so we can make some money over there. Thank you for supporting yeah. us. And we will have uh, fun little episodes throughout the year, but this is our last book, as Alexis said. And then next week, we have a special bonus episode for you. So thank you for listening to Lit Society, our fourth season. Um, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Sanaria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you love our show. Love we love you, you too. too. Please share this show with at least one person today who you think would love this episode. And until next time, you guys, read, read something. something.